Our generation believed that there were facts that you could establish, and then you could argue about what to do about them. You could argue about where they came from, you could argue about whatever, but there would be data that was irrefutable, and it's gone now. We can't even agree on the facts, as we know with all the fake news and all the stuff we've been hearing about for the last couple years since the last election. So we live in a world that can't even agree on facts, let alone truth with a capital T. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs, ideas behind the news of religion. I'm Bill Baker. Roberta Green Amundsen is a writer and a philanthropist whose public activities are focused on the role of religion in public life. She's also a journalist with a wide range of interests and a longtime friend. Amundsen and I visited at King's College to discuss her views about the role of religion in a changing public sphere. Uh, Roberta, welcome to our podcast. And why don't we start out talking about religion and journalism and what's happening there? Well, thank you, Bill. It's good to be on the podcast. I was a reporter 35 years ago. Well, 33. And I was a religion reporter. And at that time, there was a a brief uh, window of uh, interest in religion reporting. And all the major newspapers had people who actually knew something about religion covering religion. Um, Even then, though, I interviewed for some jobs, and the question I was invariably asked was, why can't just anybody cover religion? The fact of the matter was you wouldn't have just anybody cover baseball. If, if the person didn't know the rules of the game, know the players, know the owners, know, the, you know, know how it worked, you wouldn't have that person cover baseball. And the same is true about religion. If people are tone deaf to it or don't have any interest in it or don't know anything about it, they're not even going to know what questions to ask. And that happens um, on all kinds of levels still, unfortunately. I mean, there are lots of accusations about bias, and I think there is some that religion seems a little nutty. When I was in the newsroom, people thought it was a little nutty, and that's 30 years ago, you know, because people would say to me, well, Roberta, you know, you cover religion. What's there to cover? I don't know anyone who goes to church. I said, well, I don't know anyone who doesn't go to either a temple, a synagogue, a church. Uh, You know, I mean, Orange County even had a Zoroastrian temple. But it was all around, but people just, you know, it wasn't part of their lives. And, And I think that that, and they thought it was a little nuts. I said, well, it makes the world go round. You know, it's a very real factor, and it's one of the prime motivating factors in people's lives. So, and I think that the rise of militant Islam, which is not all of Islam, um, but of Wahhabi Islam, uh, has brought religion to people's consciousness more. Unfortunately, so have the sex scandals in the Catholic Church and the Southern Baptists and and other, you know, crazy stuff, horrible crazy stuff that happens. But that's not all there is to it. You know, back when I was a uh, a journalist, I had an editor who thought that religion was either a scandal, meaning somebody took the money and ran or ran off with the secretary or whatever, or it was something weird. Like, um, well, for them, the Hare Krishnas were weird. I did a story on Hare Krishnas. And that editor and I clashed a lot, and I got very angry once I actually swore at her across the newsroom. And I eventually, I apologized and, and sat down and said, you know, could I explain to you what I think this beat is about? It's about the, the trends in what people believe and what's happening and how it motivates their lives. And so 
I, I would like to see better coverage and deeper coverage, even of the things that are scandalous, because they usually are situated in a context that has deeper meaning. There are nuances to how you can cover it, but um, it's just one of the most important motivating factors of human life in the world. And if we don't cover it fairly, I think that we, we are misled and we misunderstand. In the secular society of America, the role of religion has actually changed. Certainly the mainline religions have started losing uh, members and uh, participants, but religion still remains powerful. How do you view secular America today in the sense of religion and where religion fits in and where religion should fit in? Well, you know, about 30 years ago, well, maybe more would be, Richard John Newhouse wrote a book called The Naked Public Square. And the question is, are people allowed to argue from a point of view of their faith in the public square? And for me, the answer is yes. I think citizenship in the United States means that everyone, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Zoroastrian, whatever, has a right to to argue from the point of view of their morality. And of course, in what is supposed to be a democracy, then people take what sounds good out of those arguments and, and leave what doesn't. I think it's important in a secular society that the, the secularness of it include people of religious faith, not as priests or, or shamans or whatever, but to include them as citizens of the country who have a right for their viewpoint to be heard. And they have a right to that viewpoint being rooted in their faith. What about the next step, which is seeking the truth? What about the role of truth in religion and the need for truth to get us to the end game? Wow. I mean, that's, uh, you, you asked the big question. Truth is no longer something that is agreed upon in our society that can be defined. So a friend of mine and I were talking on the phone. We've been friends forever, and she's a, she's a woman of the, of, of the left, and I'm a woman of the not left. Um, and she and I have been thinking of writing something together because we're friends. I mean, I love her. And if I were in a battle and she were at my back, I wouldn't be afraid. But we differ deeply about some issues but we can talk about it. And, she, and we were talking about the fact that we were both trained in journalism by an old uh, codger who could have been on front page or something. Um, but it was, if you got a name, a date, a number, a fact wrong, it was an automatic F. Because if you couldn't get those things right, why should you believe anything else you wrote? Our generation believed that there were facts that you could establish and then you could argue about what to do about them. You could argue about where they came from. You could argue about whatever. But there would be data that was irrefutable. And it's gone now. We can't even agree on the facts, as we know with all the fake news and all the stuff we've been hearing about for the last couple years since the last election. So we live in a world that can't even agree on facts, let alone truth with a capital T. So... I'm very old-fashioned. I think some things are true and some aren't. And I'm, I'm personally a Christian believer because I think it's the best explanation for reality, and I happen to think it's true. 
And I think here's where the thing broke down and broke down sometimes because there were people who believed what I believe, who then believed you should hit other people over the head until they agreed with you. And for me, what it means is more uh, that I need to respect conclusions other people have come to. And in good faith, we can discuss and argue and disagree. But that's very different from the world we swim in today philosophically and sociologically and culturally, which is that there is nothing that's true. And so we get the kind of fierce defenses and accusations that we now get from people who are committed to things, often very emotionally and not not on a basis of fact, um, or on the basis of an experience, which is a fact, um, but then the other becomes demonized completely, and um, there's no forgiveness and no way back. So I, I, I'm concerned about the fact that, that nobody thinks there is a truth to work toward, um, that none of us has a complete handle on. Um, I don't think that that's even part of the discussion anymore. Fascinating. What about the intersection of religion and politics? You touched on that a little bit. What, do you have anything to say about that right now, in these times, in this nation, in this year? Just a little. I think from the point of view of evangelicalism, which has been you know, talked a lot about as being too involved in politics. And, and for one thing, evangelicalism isn't uh, of a piece. It's, it's got all kinds of differences within it. And I think it is an ignorance of religion that people don't know that. Um, sometimes I think there are some people who don't want to know it. But, um, but there's a wide range of, of people, even within what's called evangelicalism. And it's true in any religion. Um, there are people, well, and I think America has invited this because of our Protestant history, um, our kind of Protestantized secular religion that, you know, in the 50s you had to have faith in faith somehow, um, which is a kind of liberalized Protestantism. But, um, and, but with the moral majority, which I came to reporting when that was all happening, and, and the, um, the revolution in Iran, which brought the Ayatollahs into power, um, there was a new look at you know, the importance of religion and politics, because you had a, a Muslim uh, regime taking over in the name of religion, which scared everybody half to death in the newsrooms that I was in. I mean, what is this? And then, but then they saw what was happening with Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and its support for then Ronald Reagan as, uh, as, as the same thing, which it wasn't at all. I mean, no American evangelical would ever think of, of trying to impose all of their personal um, convictions as to behavior on everybody else. There are things that have been contended over in the last 40 years it is now that have to do with social issues like like uh, assisted suicide. And abortion has been very fraught. It's still a fraught um, issue in our country, as was marriage. But I go back to my first statement, which is I think that people should be able to argue on political positions out of the morality and convictions of their faith. At the same time, I think that evangelicals and any religion, frankly— that thinks that politics is the primary way you live out your faith is misguided. And um, 
what we are to be about, certainly if you read the Bible uh, from the point of view of a Christian or a Jew, um, the deal was not about taking over governments. Far from it. Um, Certainly, you know, you were to respect the government, you were to live within it, but the thing about that you needed to worry about was how you lived your life in relation to the people around you. And I think within evangelicalism, there's a strong movement back to that, to the church being the church again, participating in public life out of, out of the moral convictions that go with it, such as being active in the lives of, in issues like homelessness. And I think that's the proper thing for a Christian or a, you know anybody out of their religion that tells them you to care about the other, to be involved in, in something that does become political, such as housing. But to think that I'm going to be a good religious person by doing politics, or I'm going to bring in Nirvana or the New Jerusalem or whatever, I think is misguided and can be dangerous. Not physically dangerous, but politically dangerous. A last question, Roberta, and that is the intersection of art and religion. You're an art collector. You've started museums. You care very much about art and religion. What's going on in that world right now, and what does that mean to you personally? And I mean, you've traveled all over the world looking for sacred spaces. Uh, I mean, that alone is five podcasts. But uh, So is there any way to summarize all this? I, I'll, I'll try to be brief, Bill. It'll be a, a challenge, but I'll try. Um, well, as you know, we both were on the board of the Museum of Biblical Art, um, which was a great and wonderful endeavor that went out with a blaze of glory with a Donatello show. Um, one, a couple things are happening, I think. One is, for a long time within the art world, you couldn't use the word beauty. It's now being talked about from all sorts of angles. It was seen as a, uh, it, was a lot, it was a lot of Marxist thought behind it, but it was seen as a word that was used by one class of people to put another class of people down and say that, you know, what they did wasn't beauty, so therefore they didn't count, and we are the arbiters of what is beautiful and all that sort of thing. And there was something to that argument, but it's not the whole story. I mean, too many people line up to look at the sunsets off the beaches um, to say that beauty doesn't exist. And so people like Dave Hickey and Elaine Scarry, she, 20 years ago she wrote her book, I think, on beauty and being just. Um, and Dave Hickey's written and talked about it a lot, and, but others are beginning to. Um, and beauty is a, is a word that, that most religions hold dear. It's important in Christianity, and visual culture is important, and it's its own language. Um, which, which every religion has its visual culture and its visual configuration of its, of its faith, of its beliefs. And what's happening now is not only is beauty being talked about, but religion can be talked about. And there are all sorts of openings. You see it at Basel programs at Freeze, the big art fairs, um, and there have been an increasing number of books, essays. Um, just this week, I had a dinner with a prominent art historian who uh, wrote a book called No Idols, um, The Missing Theology in Contemporary Art. Um, I mean, he's a big name and uh, in art history and very respected. And the book is about, um, uh, about Chardin, the French 18th century um, painter who was a Jansenist. 
And the second person is Robert Smithson, whose work was profoundly rooted in his theology of a, of a type of Christian theology. And then the middle one essay is about a man named Colin McCann, who's a New Zealander, who was a, a Christian believer who struggled with God, and he also was a, an early advocate for Maori rights. And then it's followed by an essay about uh, James Terrell, who is, has been, and probably always will be, a Quaker. Um, and, and then last but far from least, Mark Rothko. He was brought up in Orthodox Judaism. He rejected that, and yet he could never leave it behind. And he ends up, at, you know, at the end of his life, he does that profound chapel. So he was a person who was haunted by questions about God. And, and so these things can be talked about again. And it's, it seems like there's a breathing space, and we're, we're working on a project in Los Angeles. We're creating a space that will have gallery space, a studio space, a residence, and then a courtyard, and also a, a meditation space. Our goal is one to serve artists because I've been visiting artists for four days here in New York, and the tales continue of what happens to artists and and dealers and galleries. Never mind. Um, we're going to try to to do a good job, and um, and the other thing is we want to foster a space for a conversation to talk about the relationship between any and all religions um, and contemporary art because there hasn't been a forum for that or a space where where that could be considered. But more and more, and there's an openness to it, and we've been doing our due diligence and doing some um, evenings, and we're going to do a pop-up show in the fall and uh, with programming that will raise those questions. And our, our directors have found as they talk to people in Los Angeles, there's a, a huge openness to talk about the relationship of, of religions um, and, and contemporary art, be it Islam or Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, or a wide variety of others floating around out there. So I think it's an important thing to talk about. Um, and, and so we're, we're going to get a chance to take religion and religious issues seriously in the art world that there just hasn't been that openness for a time. Roberta Amundsen, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Our guest was Roberta Amundsen, journalist and philanthropist. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. We are collecting stories. If you have a story of your beliefs that sets you apart, email our producer at jw.beliefs at religionnews.com. That's jw.beliefs at religionnews.com. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Our producer is Jay Woodward. Our theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.